You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 25 of the Archaeology and Ale podcast, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. The talks take place at the Red Deer, a popular pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, near the Department of Archaeology. It is a busy place, so there may be some background noise in our recordings, and be advised that strong language may be used from time to time. This month, our guest speaker is Rosalind Buck, here to tell us all about her archaeological adventures with the National Trust. So yeah, hi everyone. Um, So my name's Roz, um, and as as you can see, I work for the National Trust as one of their archaeologists. so it's very nice to be here, <laughs> um, especially in the Red Deer, because as I say, I, I, I did go to Sheffield University as well. I did my undergraduate and my master's here so many years ago. Um, so the Red Deer is a very familiar venue for me um, from my student days. Um, so with this talk, um, what I was kind of trying to do was just give an overview of the types of archaeology that we have across the National Trust um, and also give a bit more of an explanation about what an archaeologist does within that organisation. Um, so, um, yeah, if when people ask me to kind of explain what a National Trust archaeologist, it's a bit tricky sometimes because there's lots of different factors and, and elements to the role. Um, basically, um, sometimes I act as like a curator, so I provide guidance and um, advice to the various properties under my care about their archaeology and um, how best to care for it and extract the stories as well that they can share with the visitors. Um, sometimes also kind of act as a basically a consultant. Um, unfortunately, I don't get to do much field work myself these days. Um, we tend to um, tender that out to external archaeological units um, when we need that sort of stuff doing. Um, but I still need to write project designs, obviously um, do the yeah do the various site monitoring as well um, to make sure everything's going smoothly. So that's kind of more project management work. And then also because it's National Trust, there's a lot of community archaeology involved as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and volunteer management as well. So as I say, it's, it's a, a wide range of different things all bundled up into one role. Um, so just for a bit of context, um, the organisation as a whole um, employs 20 archaeologists and we're spread out across all of England, Wales and Northern Ireland as well. Um, the National Trust of Scotland is a completely separate organisation to the National Trust, just to be confusing. Um, so they have their own archaeologists, even though we do actually work quite closely with them as well. Um, so I'm just one of four archaeologists working within the Midlands region. Um, we've got Janine and Viviana. Um, working in the West Midlands and then there's myself and Rachel Hall, um, my colleague working in the East Midlands as well. So um, basically 
the Midlands, that's the Midlands as a whole, and it's split um, down the middle, kind of with a diagonal line. So, um, yeah, the East Midlands is this bit. We go as far west as Derbyshire and the Peak District, um, and we come as far south as um, the northern part of Northamptonshire. Yeah, the right white and white writing's not showing up very well there. So we've got Cannons Ashby down here and lived in New Build. They're our most southern most properties that me and Rachel look after. But we also look after um, properties in Leicestershire, Rutland, Nottinghamshire and, and Lincolnshire as well. Um so say it's, it's quite a big area. Um involves a lot of driving but we can't really complain because there's a nice National Trust property at the end of each drive with tea and cake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so within the Midlands region, we have um, almost 16,000 um, archaeological features recorded on our Sites and Monuments Record database. So that sounds a lot. Um, as you guys all know, archaeology is a very vast and uh, varied discipline. So those records cover a lot of different things. Some things are buildings, so the actual mansion houses themselves, um, and also other structures in the parkland. Um, there are more traditional archaeological sites, such as earthwork sites, hill forts, buried sites. Um, but we also have records for individual objects and collections as well. So lots of different things. Um, this is one of our high status sites. Um, so this is Tattershaw Castle over in Lincolnshire, and it's the 15th century um, Great Tower that survives on the site there. Um, we also look after more humble features as well, though. Um, so more representative of the everyday um ordinary person and everyday activities that used to happen in the historic environment. So these are all from the Peak District um, from the Eastern Moors, which are just outside Sheffield, um, really easy to get to um, on the bus and so on. So we've got stuff like millstone production going on, guide stoops, and also various little ruined shelters going on as well. Those are dotted all over the Peak District and they would have been used by um, all, for all different reasons, like quarrymen, for instance, or shepherds. So lots of different things. We also have more modern um, sites that we look after. So this is a Second World War air crash, uh, aircraft crash site. That's quite difficult to say. Um, again, out in the Peak District, out on the moors, in the Howden Moor. Um, some of our mansion properties as well, such as um, Belton and Kettleston and Hardwick Hall, they all have remnants of um, military training camps as well in their parklands, so relating to both the First and Second World Wars there. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so in order to care for all those range, vast range of different archaeological features, we, of course, need to find out, first of all, what we have um, and, and do various types of research as well to find out the condition of those things. So um, a big part of mine and Rachel's role is the commissioning of various different surveys, um, whether they be various desk-based research, um, archival research, historic um, map regression exercises, um, geophysics, that sort of thing. Lots of, um, the main thing about all those is that they're non-intrusive. So those are the sort of surveys that obviously we would always start with commissioning first um, when we're looking at a site. Um, obviously, we tend to only put a trowel in the ground when we have questions that we want answering, specific questions, um, or 
in the exception is if there's a rescue excavation going on so that site's going to be destroyed anyway and we need to record it but to be honest that doesn't happen very often on national trust land <laughs> be a bit worried if suddenly um, our archaeology was being eroded away it, it does happen actually saying that on some of the coastal areas but um us in, uh, in the East Midlands, we don't have any coastline, <laughs> <laughs> so it would be very unusual for us in our region. Um, so yeah, because yeah, obviously excavation is a destructive process at the end of the day. Um, so when we do excavate, we want to make sure that those excavations are very targeted to um, get the maximum amount of knowledge and the minimal amount of loss of that archaeology, so it's um, preserved for future generations. Um, so this image is from um, a LIDAR survey that we had done recently of um, Cummins Ashby down in Northampton, um, Northamptonshire. Um, and I'm not going to go through the mechanics of LIDAR because I'm sure you know, know all about LIDAR. Um, but basically what LIDAR is really useful for us um, in doing is um, obviously picking up those really ephemeral faint earthwork features that are scattered across the landscape that you wouldn't normally see if you're doing a traditional earthwork survey. Um, so we've done a lot of the um, LIDAR surveys recently on a lot of our properties across the East Midlands. Um, so Cannons Ashby, um, you guys probably won't know, so I'll give you a bit of context. Um, so the main house is located down here. Um, and that started off as a 15th century farmhouse and then over the resulting centuries various um, wings and additions have been bolted on so it's it's, it's a if you haven't been I really recommend it because it's a proper higgledy-piggledy old house it's one of my favorites in our region even though I don't tell that to the other properties um, so yeah but obviously what the LIDAR is really good at is showing all of those landscape features that came before the development of that house so we know that there was a medieval village, obviously, at Cairns Ashby, and there was a medieval monastery as well, hence the name Cairns Ashby. Um, and LIDAR is really good at showing all these earlier landscape features. So we've got lots of uh, ridge and furrow um, turning up there. So the medieval field system, which is all preserved within the post-medieval um, parkland. Um, we've also got, along the road, we've got little tofts and crofts. Um, showing up there of, of the medieval um, village and the, and the individual house plots going on. Um, we've got various little depressions going on all over the place, which would have been evidence of um, stone extraction, small scale stone extraction, so for the various um, walls and buildings that were being built in this area. And then in the middle, which you guys have probably seen as this weird um, circular feature, quite prominent. Now, uh, this is a feature of a bit of debate. Some people have argued um, that it is part of the most post-medieval landscape. It's a viewing platform that the family and visitors to Cannons Ashby House would have used to look out over the parkland. Um, but others argued that it's actually got early orange origins and actually given its location next to the medieval village, people said that potentially it might be the site of a medieval model Bailey Castle. So that's something that we would like to explore further given time and money and, and funds uh, from the property. But um, having the LIDAR plot is really useful evidence um, for helping us build that case potentially in the future. Um, and it's also just really good to kind of share with the property as well. It's really tactile evidence for them to use to kind of 
understand that there's longer life histories to quite a lot of our sites. It's not just about the house and the people living inside the house, which is what a lot of people perceive the National Trust to be. <laughs> um, we have a lot of really rich landscapes that have a lot of um, archaeology in them and that have developed over time. So, yeah, it's really useful. Um, a lot of the work that comes across mine and Rachel's desks in um, is related to various um, infrastructure improvements that properties want to do on sites. Um, so here's just a, f a few examples um, to kind of illustrate the kind of different things we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so the image on the left here is from Island Hall um, in the Peak District. And um, basically last year, they um, they had a project to um, extend their existing car park. Um, partly, they're just getting so many visitors regularly now um, throughout the year that the current infrastructure is just not is just not viable. So they need to extend their car park. Um, they ran it past us because they knew that the current car park is built on um, the site of the 18th century walled garden that used to belong to Island Hall, um, and so extending that was going to potentially reveal more archaeology. Um, it also is going through planning as well. So the National Park Authority um, were going to put, we, we, we spoke to them and we knew that they were going to put an archaeological condition on that, on that planning application um, for an archaeological watching group to take place. So we commissioned um, an archaeologist from Arc Heritage to be there during the groundworks for that extension. And um, yeah, and this is this um, to re to record um, any of the archaeological features that were revealed, and they found a few things, including this nice wall, which um, is part of the boundary wall of the of the wall garden. They also found some brick troughs and some pathways as well, which related to um, the, the the historic garden. And it was quite nice that we could actually match those with we had a very detailed historic plan from the 19th century of that wall garden so we could match the features to exactly what was shown on the on the mapping which was really nice and um, the other nice thing about that project was that um rather than just preserve um these features by record which is what we normally do as part of an archaeological watching brief we actually um deliberately spoke to um, the property and the developers that were doing the extension um, and came up with a solution to actually keep the, that archaeology in situ. Um, and instead of digging down to build, put their sub-basin for the car park, they built up. So actually all those features are still on the ground now, which is it's quite nice and quite rare. Um, the top left image is from Gumby Hall over in Lincolnshire. Um, it's also to do with a car park. Um, quite a lot of our work in the National Trust is to do with car parks or extensions to cafes at the moment. It's very cliched. Um, <laughs> so at the moment at Gumby Hall, it's just quite a small property um, just outside Skegness. Um, they don't actually have any formal car parking whatsoever. Currently visitors um, park on the avenue, um, the main avenue into the site, which is this. They park either side of that, which isn't very good for the veteran trees that are lining that avenue because the cars are compacting the ground um, and not very good for the roots. Um, and also in the winter, it's really boggy as well. So they're churning up the ground there. Um, so um, they were looking at several sites to put this new car park. And this this area here in grey is was one option that they came forward to. You can see why they wanted to put it there. Um, this here is the main house and the stables. 
so it was right next to the visitor facilities which would be really good for the visitors but it was also in a field that was screened by trees so people coming up the main drive wouldn't see all the car well walking up the main drive wouldn't be able to see all the cars parked so that would be better than it currently is um there was no known archaeology in that area um but to be on the safe side we commissioned a geophysical survey by allen archaeology and um and say we can see this very clear enclosure that got turned up as part of that with those results um we did some targeted trial trenching to to follow up on that and that revealed that um it was an enclosure from the bronze age slash iron age and there was evidence of domestic activity happening there as well as metalworking stuff so really nice little site actually that that got revealed as part of this process um and because of those findings, but not just because of those findings, um, the ecologist, star ecologist, had concerns about the site as well, um, impacting on the habitat, wildlife and habitat. Um, but for that, those reasons, that site was struck off as an option. So they found somewhere else that was much less impactful. So that was, that was nice. Um, and then I've got um, the image down at the bottom as well. Um, Norbury Old Manor in Derbyshire. Um, just to illustrate that we also do historic building surveys as well. Um, so again, this is not a, quite a small little property actually, Norbury, um, and it's quite complicated in its phasing as you can kind of see. Started off as a 12th, 13th century medieval manor house, um, and it's been ex- demoli- bits were demolished on this side, and it's been extended on that side, and it's got insertions all over the place and windows and doors where they shouldn't really be <laughs> so um we commissioned a historic building survey from Chesset consultancy um and the report they produced was really fantastic it really clarified what was built when what came first and so from that report we were able to improve the on-site interpretation um, that we had there and also share that for those findings with our room volunteers as well so they could share it with the visiting public so that was good as well um, so I've kind of alluded to the fact that me and Rachel aren't based at one specific property. Um, we're based in what National Trust call um, a, Regency, a Regency consultancy team. Um, so that's like a, a mixture of lots of different specialists um, from building surveyors, ecologists, um, estate management, um, marketing, social media experts, loads of different people basically a big melting pot um, this image is just kind of ex- illustrate that collaborative process um, so we've got our um, farming advisor our ecologist and one of the Nash- uh, the Peak District rangers there as well um, and this is out again out in the Peak District like um, quite a lot of my uh, slides have been so far um, this is over at Moniash um, and the thing that they're all looking at which you can't see unfortunately it's a tiny little flower which I also can't remember the name of because I'm not an ecologist um, but the reason why that flower is there because it, um, that site used to be a historic lead mine so you can see all the hollows in the background so those are where they used to extract all the lead and so on um, so it's just again to illustrate that process that when we're looking at pieces of land in terms to um, come up with solutions how to best manage it and um, we have to come in, come at it from lots of different perspectives as well because um this is a working farm as well um so we have a farm tenant there so it needs to be productive um but then we also need to think of it from the wildlife perspective and the historic environment perspective so uh, uh, yeah 
can be complicated and sometimes lots of compromises, but uh, we get there in the end. Um, another thing that we have to do is um, kind of a regular audit of the current condition of our archaeology. Um, now, as I said, we've got across the whole of the Midlands, 16,000 features. Obviously, we don't all monitor all of those because some of those are fine spots and so on. But even even so, it runs up to thousands and thousands of sites we need to have a look at on a sort of a three-year cycle. Obviously, me and Rachel can't do that on our own. So this is where our, volunteer, our amazing volunteers come in. Um, so we have quite large groups um, of volunteers all across our region, and say so the main one being in the Peak District again. Um, and what we do is kind of give each of our volunteers a list of sites that we want them to monitor that year um, and they'll go out and try and find those features, hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes grid references can be a bit erroneous or terrain can be a bit tricky, so they, uh, they have a, a fun adventure. But um, once they find them, they, um, they take photos of the sites and also fill out these forms as well, Ooh, those forms, um, to try and make an assessment whether they think that feature's in a good or bad or a fair condition. If they think it's declining, why do they think that, that sort of thing? Um, and basically all that, all the data they collect, they upload to a website that me and Rachel look at on an annual basis, an annual review. And then if we, we spot any trends or we, we have any concerns in particular about certain features, we'll go and talk to the property team um, and try and find, find um, solutions to some of those issues. So some of the common things might be that we have earthwork sites um, in, in fields where we've got stock as well, so cattle grazing. And in winter, um, they might churn up the ground, which might damage the earthwork. So we might talk to the ranger team about trying to take some of that cattle off during the winter to protect the archaeology. And vegetation is a big thing as well, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, our volunteers are great. We can't do, we wouldn't be able to do half our job without them. Um, as I say, community archaeology is, is another big thing as well of our role. So um, we try and get people involved where we can, whether that's through um, let, um, letting them participate or maybe just view um, archaeological digs that we organise. We don't do that as, as nearly as much as we would like to. Um, or we sometimes let local societies have access to our sites and our collections so they can do research. Um, we have lots of their family events and uh, activities as well um, and yeah we've got a couple of um, young archaeologist clubs as well um, at our, our properties Cork and Island I think that's where they're based so um, yeah lots of lots of stuff going on um, so kind of for the second bit of the talk I was just going to go through um, a particular example of a dig that we've done recently. So this is um, Columba Park um, over in Nottinghamshire. So it's not, again, not too far away from Sheffield actually, if you want to go and have a look yourselves. Um, so last summer we did a four day dig um, over there. Um, we opened the site up to the public and we also um, got some of the existing Clumber Park volunteers um, involved and actually in participating in the dig. Um, so again, a bit of context, Clumber Park um, was the country estate of the Dukes of Newcastle. Um, most, of, um, most of the park was developed in the 18th and 19th century and it consists of about 400 acres of parkland um, all enclosing this sort of this central hub here which um, we've got a gothic chapel a walled garden and stables um, remaining today 
Um, the thing that's missing, um, which 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 would have been the main focal point of the estate, obviously, is actually the house um, that was demolished um, in 1938. Um, partly due to fire damage, they had a couple of fires, one in the late 19th century, one in the early 20th century. But actually, the, probably the main reason why the house was demolished was um, more to do with the fact that the family at the time just couldn't afford the massive expenses um, and the, ex- um, the taxes that involved... Um, running a, a grand house at the time so it's quite a traditional like common story of, of country houses at that time in the 20th century it's just in this case um that they decided to demolish the house rather than give it gift it off <laughs> um so yeah this is what Clumber house did look like when it was still standing so you can see it was very grand and it had formal gardens all the way around it as well. Um, so today, very little of that survives. Um, there was a little portion, which you can't really, you can't really make out here. There's a bit here, which is called the Duke Study, um, which still stands today and is part of the National Trust Cafe. Um, we always <laughs> make good uses of our, <laughs> of our, our ruined buildings. Um, but yes, there's also some modern planting as well at the lakeside. Um, which um, marks out these three fountains, which would have been part of the formal gardens. Um, but really, though, on site, there is really minimal interpretation of the mansion and the gardens. Um, I don't think it's probably wrong to say that most visitors to Columbia Park don't realise that this was the site of, an, of, of a really big grand house. Um, and if they do know that, they probably can't comprehend um, quite how vast and how big it was it once was um there has been a couple of previous excavations of the site um in the 1960s um, they excavated it and they uncovered we we know that they did uncover quite a lot of the foundations but unfortunately they didn't write up those excavations properly which is another classic feature of that sort of archaeology at that time so we still had big questions about what they found about the detail about it um after those 1960s excavations they did mark out the outline of the mansion house in flags but again i think most of the visitors that visit the site don't know what those represent so they don't really it's a bit meaningless in some ways um there was another excavation in the early 2000s as well um when some new drainage was going in around the stable yard um and again some some floors were uncovered um with some mosaics and so on so we know that we we knew that there was stuff um so we'd quite we wanted to kind of have a look again and see what what did survive um Columba House, the property team at the moment, have got a 10-year um, project, big project on the go called Columba Revitalised, which is ultimate aim is to try and restore some of this historic parkland. Um, and so as part of that project, they asked me and Rachel if we did want to go back and, and do a, a small dig. And we said, yes, <laughs> yes, please. Um, so yes, we went back last summer and uh, so for four days. Um to mark out where we wanted to put our trenches. So we only had two trenches because they were only there for a short period of time. We didn't want to give ourselves too much to do as so we were involving volunteers as well. So we wanted to make sure that they were going at a comfortable pace. <laughs> um, so we used this historic floor plan of the house that we had to, to mark out where we wanted to target. So we've got trench one, 
up here, um, which we want to put in to target. You can't really read the, the rooms there at all anyway, but that's the kitchen. This is the kitchen. That's the butler's pantry. So that's towards the back of the house, the, the servants' quarters. And then trench two was to target um, the grand hall and um, the yellow drawing room as well. So um, we chose those two areas partly because we were we consulted with the volunteers who were participating and, wanted, and asked them what they wanted to learn more about the house and uh, they, they indicated these. And also we wanted to make sure that we had um, quite a clear narrative um, to share with the visitors um, who were visiting the site during the excavation. So having an upstairs, downstairs, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a really clear, nice message narrative um, that our visiting public should hopefully understand and get into so yeah we thought that was quite ideal um we were really lucky that in the lead up to the dig we had the massive heat wave <laughs> that we had last summer and um the floor plan of the house revealed itself <laughs> so um yeah so you got all your you know, all your all your corridors and rooms showing up really nicely and also the um the formal gardens as well around the house were showing up as parch marks um so that was super useful <laughs> as it when we came out to mark out our trenches we could make sure that we got them exactly where we wanted them to go um and also just in terms of publicity for the dig um so we had these drain shots done of the parch marks and the property team shared them on social media on their social media pages and they just inundated by various reporters wanting to do articles on, on the missing house revealing itself even though we all knew it was there anyway mm -hmm. <laughs> um we even had um the one show come up and film on site <laughs> a few days before we did our dig so it was it was just serendipity but it was yeah amazing free publicity <laughs> for our dig I was talking to several visitors during the dig when we were on site and um, they were all they were all convinced that we were only there because of the parch marks and the fact that we've been on the one show I was like no we've been planning this since last November <laughs> it's like it's many months in the planning it's just lucky <laughs> um so here are a couple of things, um, images of the stuff that we found. Um, so probably should have made the, some of the images a bit bigger. Um, so trench one on the left, as I was targeting the kitchen, but this pantry, we've got this massive stonking wall that came up in it, which is the kitchen wall, which is obviously so, so robust because of the risk of fire and so on, because of stuff that's going on in that part of the house. Um, you could also just about see the scar here and um, the bricks coming up here. So those are the tops of the cellars that would have run under the house at that at that point. Um, have some nice vines come out of that trench as well. We've got glazed brick, um, so quite functional um, material culture coming out. Got quite plain but coloured different bits of plaster work coming out um, and the star find from that trench was this which is an early light switch um, which our volunteers got really excited about more excited than I thought they would do and I think that's partly because they were all expecting to find structural um, remains obviously the walls and so on because it's, it's the house but to find an object that um, is so recognisable in a modern house. <laughs> I think surprised them. <laughs> um, and yeah, they haven't really animated discussions with some of our visitors um, about it. It was really quite funny to overhear some of them, but it was great that they were getting so enthusiastic about it. Um, so on the other side of the site, we had trench two, as say targeting the Grand Hall. Um, we also had structural stuff 
um, come up in this trench as well as to be expected so we've got the bottom, it's not quite clear there, but it's the, the bottom base of um, one of the columns that would have run either side of the Grand Hall. Um, right at the back of the trench as well, there was a wall, an, an internal partition wall that was revealed, um, which would have been um, the partition wall between the uh, yellow drawing room and the small dining room. Um, <laughs> they have a small dining room <laughs> as well as a large dining room. Um, yeah, um, there was quite a lot of demolition rubble in coming out of this trench, which again is understandable, seeing that the house was demolished. Um, and we had some nice finds coming out. So we got individual tesserae from mosaic floors that would have spread out throughout the Grand Hall. And we had lots of bits of decorative plaster work as well um, coming up. So um, from all the ceilings and, and the columns and whatnot. So really really nice juxtaposition of finds from both the trench so you've got the yeah the more utilitarian stuff coming out from the servants quarters and the really high-end decorative stuff coming out of the family areas of the house so kind of what we were expecting but nice that it was what we were expecting as well um so yeah no real surprises but um what was nice as well is just how much of the archaeology did still survive underground. We were really quite pleased with that. And actually quite a, quite a shallow level as well, as you can see. Um, so that's something that the property team will need to think about. And me and Rachel will have discussions as we go forward with that about when they come up with ideas about how they want to represent, re-represent this area of, of Clumber to the visitors to try and... Um, highlights the fact that the house used to be here which is what they want to do we'll have to consider what their plans are and so whatever they come up with won't damage that really sensitive archaeological site that we have um so another real thing that the national trust is really hot on at the moment is trying to evaluate um things such as why our volunteers volunteer for us and why our visitors spend, like to spend their time at our places. Um, so in that vein, we, um, we, we commissioned the external evaluation of our dig at the same time. Um, so we had a researcher from um, University of Durham, Nicole Smith, come to the dig. Um, she interviewed our volunteers, but she also tracked our visitor movements as well. And noted down overheard comments and stuff like that um, we were quite lucky that our dig site was right next to the main visitor facilities at Cumber Park so it meant that we had high footfall and um, we also had children's activities going on as well so we had lots of families come um, and say so all that free publicity as well so we had lots of visitors um, so she noted down various things like that so again nothing strictly that out of the ordinary um, it's kind of what you expect um, but it's nice for that to be confirmed, really. Um, so these are some of the quotes that she got from her interviews with the volunteers. Um, we had about 10 or 15 volunteers altogether um, participate in the dig. And I say they're all existing Clumber Park volunteers, but they were all previously volunteering in different roles. So some might volunteer with the ranger team, for instance, some were volunteering in the shop or the cafe or as visitor welcome. So um, a lot, I think one or two had previous experience of archaeological excavation, but most didn't. So um, we, um, I've got to say, yeah, we were, we were excavating the site in partnership with um, Trent and Peak Archaeology. So they had their archaeologists on site training up our volunteers and teaching them these new skills. Um, 
And it was also an opportunity for, for the volunteers to have a new perspective on the site. A lot of them involved volunteered at Clumber for 10, 15 years or so, so they really knew the site really well. This is the first opportunity they had to come this close to the material culture of the house. Um, so, yeah, it's, they, they really seemed to um, they really get involved and got quite passionate about it. And so a lot of this stuff is, as you say, kind of what you expect. As archaeologists, what you want to expect um, archaeology does to people and that sort of thing. So it's, it's highlighting the tactile nature of archaeology, the fact that they could touch um, the remains and the objects coming out of the ground. Um, it meant that it made the site more real to them and they, it fueled their imaginations and they could start to imagine the people that used to live there and, and work and move around those spaces. Um, also, like this quote down here as well, the fact that archaeology is not just about the prehistorical Roman stuff. Um, everything is archaeology. Um, archaeology is the study of people and how people have interacted with the, um, the landscape over thousands of years and, and what we've left behind. So the fact that a 19th, 20th century house um, could create all these really rich, um, interesting stories um, that people engage with as much as a Roman villa could, I think, challenged a few preconceptions of archaeology. So that was also very nice that we, and Nicole managed to capture that. So, um, yeah, so in all, quite a nice dig that we did. Um, it, it helped raise the profile of the missing house to our visitors. It confirmed that there was actually still quite a lot of archaeology going on. Um, and so quite a shallow level. So that's something the property needs to think about. And also the same, the most important thing for me was that actually by having these volunteers participate in the in the actual excavation, it seemed that we helped strengthen and enrich their already existing connection to Clumber Park. Um, and they were able to share that enthusiasm that they had with visitors during the time of the dig, but also hopefully they'll be able to share that as well going in the future in their other volunteer roles as well. Um, so that's kind of my talk. I was just going to end with a bit of a plug for our, um, our Heritage Records online website. So um, this is like a public version of our Sites and Monument database record. Um, so if you want to find out more information about any of those sites I've mentioned already, um, including Clumber House, you can download. You can even download the excavation report of Clumber House from this website. Um, it's yeah, it's there on the on the on the web, on the on Google, um, ready to be explored. And I say that's not just for the Bindon site, but that's that's for the whole of the National Trust. You can find out whatever you want to know about the archaeology, wherever. So there you go. That's my talk. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. In our next episode, the talk will be on iconic Sheffield building Mearsburg Hall with special guest speaker Ken Dash. See you next time. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.